You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. What's up, Revolution? You weren't paying attention. Let's do it again. What's up, Revolution? Same. Half of you guys don't pay attention regardless. Holly, sit down. <laughs> Got him. Um, so, I'm a Christian. Uh, shocker. Like, right, the dude who's going to be preaching is a Christian. Uh, and I'm also a nerd. Right? So that means, uh, like, three things. That means, like, probably more than three things that I'm a Christian and I'm a nerd. Um, but three things. One, I love to proclaim the gospel Right, this good news of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can never be good enough to save ourselves. We can never be obedient enough to God to save ourselves. But uh, through mercy, God sent Christ to be righteous in our place and to suffer the punishment that we deserve in our place um, so that we could be righteous in God's eyes. Right? So I love proclaiming that message. I try to do that every single week, um, as many different ways as I can. Um, the second thing that that means is this, because I'm a nerd, right? So I'm a Christian, so I love to proclaim the gospel. Um, two... I'm a nerd, so I love studying passages that are really, really weird and hard to understand. I love studying stuff like that like Jesus says in the Bible or like Paul or, or anything in the Bible that just doesn't seem to make sense at first go or like seems to contradict or, or anything like that. I, I love that. Um, and, and not only do I love to study those passages so I know, I love explaining those passages to people. Um, right? Like kind of goes hand in hand with being a preacher. This is good stuff. Um, so the text that we're going to be in this evening in the Gospel of Luke is right up my alley. Right? This is beautiful. It fits really well with the series that we're in called Did Jesus Really Say That? Where we're looking at the teachings of Jesus. Um, some of them hard. Some of them you've heard before. Some of them that don't seem to make sense right off the bat. And really digging in because Jesus says a lot of things that uh, our culture would think Jesus wouldn't say, right? Because he's not a Birkenstock wearing hippie. Um, Right? So this evening we're going to look at something that's a controversial teaching from Jesus. Uh, you may have never read this before. It's in the Bible, I, I assure you. I'm not making this up. Uh, but you may have never read it um, if you're not reading Scripture much or you've never read the entire Gospel of Luke. And if you're not reading the Bible much and you're a Christian, I would really recommend that you do that. It's really important. And if you're not a Christian, I would recommend you read the Bible anyway. Uh, it's good times. Um, but I've actually never heard a sermon on this passage that we're going to look at, with the exception of, or what, with the exception of me preparing for this sermon this week, I did listen to a sermon by a man named John MacArthur. You should check him out; he's a way better preacher than me. Uh, but I've never heard live anyone talk about this passage. Um, notice, I'm trying to hype you all up. You don't even know what the passage is about yet. So this is beautiful. Um, is it working? Are you guys hype right now? I'm like the Waka Flocka of preachers. Right? I'm just trying to get you guys. Woo! Brick Squad. Um, is he even relevant anymore? I don't know. Uh, he's, he fell off probably. I'm like 10 years behind everything. Uh, but we're going to see Jesus in this passage that we're looking at this evening. He's going to tell his disciples, his followers, to go out and buy swords. Uh, now, at first look, this can make us think that Jesus is, is inciting Christians to violence or revenge or killing those who would oppress us, or he's endorsing uh, conversion by the sword, um, kind of like Islam uh, with Muhammad, and that's actually not the case, right? So I want you to get those thoughts out of your mind. Jesus is not doing that. That is false. Um, some people, um, in, in my private conversations with people, I, I've heard people claim that this text um, that we're going to look at justifies gun ownership, 
um, that this text, which is really funny because like no one owned a gun back then. Uh, uh, people claim that this text justifies gun ownership and self-defense and, and things like that. Um, and other people think that this is a teaching where Jesus is contradicting his other teachings about Christian nonviolence, um, which would make him wrong which would make him not God, so that's not true. Uh, I, obviously, I don't think either of those views are correct, that Jesus is supporting gun ownership or that Jesus is contradicting his other teachings, and you guys will see why here in a little while. Um, before we go any further, I, I know that it's election season. It's the best time of like four years, right? I'm being sarcastic. I hate this time of year. God help us. Um, but so I know people on both sides of the gun control issue, uh, whether you're conservative or liberal, I know everyone's pretty sensitive to this stuff, and, and rightfully so. I completely understand. Um, so I just want to be really clear before we move on. Um, I am not, in this sermon, saying that no one should ever own a gun. That's not what I'm saying. I own a gun. That'd be really hypocritical, right? Uh, just throwing that out there to you guys. I'm not saying that no one should ever own a gun. I am not saying that there is never a good reason for a nation to go to war. Because um, I don't believe in that. I believe in this thing called the, the just war theory, that there are appropriate reasons, especially if another group of people are being systematically oppressed, right? Kind of like World War II, entering that war to stop the genocide um, of Jewish people, right? So I'm not saying that there's no good reason to go to war. Um, I'm not saying that there's no good reason to defend yourself either, um, or rather to defend other people, right? And I'm kind of looking at husbands right now, um, or single mothers, or whatever your situation might be. Um, to defend the people whom you're responsible for um, should someone come and threaten their life. I'm not saying that that's inappropriate. Um, I think all of these things have their appropriate place and their appropriate reason uh, and appropriate motive. Um, And I think the Bible would show us that. And and this sermon could have been completely different from what I'm going to do. We could have talked about all that kind of stuff. Um, So if you guys have any questions about what I just said, come see me uh, or write me a really hateful email. I would like that very much. Um, so I am not, <laughs> I am not anti-gun at all. Uh, I'm also not an NRA member. No offense, Mark. Um, my dad out there is. Um, okay, so now that I've got both liberals and conservatives in the room irritated with me, um, let's just keep going. Let's just see how far of a hole I can dig. Uh, <laughs> Jesus never rebukes his disciples for carrying swords. Right, we're going to see in this passage, they produce a couple of swords. Right, They're like, hey, we got a couple. And he never tells them um, that they're wrong for carrying swords. Uh, but Jesus also, at the same time, never encouraged retaliating against evil with more evil. Ever. Right, He never encourages revenge. Ever. Um, so as far as those kinds of uh, controversial issues, if you guys want to talk, I would love to talk to you about it more. Come see me after the service or send me an email and we'll meet up or something like that. Uh, but basically, I just want to say this. I'll, I'll leave your convictions to the Holy Spirit guiding you as you search out Scripture and seek what Scripture says in prayer. Right? So I'm going to leave a lot of these convictions. I think uh, gun ownership and stuff like that is kind of a Romans 14 Christian liberty issue. So I'll leave that all to you, um, or rather to the Holy Spirit, because if I leave it to you, you'll probably kill each other. Um, no, not funny? Okay. Um, right, but what I really want to do is I want us to see this text properly. Right? I want us to look at this text and see what Jesus really meant, right? This is not about sword control in Jerusalem, right? He's not, he's not like a political candidate, like endorsing some kind of legislature, um, which would have been a way different book. The Bible would be completely different. It'd be wild. Um, like House of cards just flashed through my mind. Like, Jesus is not Frank Underwood. I'm just throwing that out. Um, right, so let's dig into this passage and, and see what Jesus is really getting at and what we're really supposed to take from this instead of us putting our own words into Jesus' mouth to further our own political and personal agendas. 
Agreed? It's all good? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, and we're going to be jumping to a few other places. Uh, if you're new here, um, it's going to be up here on the projector, as you can already see. Um, and if you don't have a Bible um, and you're new or, you know, you've just been coming here and for some reason you don't have a Bible, take one of those blue Bibles in the backs of those pews home with you. That is our gift to you. We would love for you to be in the Word. Um, but let's check out this, this kind of hard teaching from Jesus, starting in verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now, he said, take your money and a traveler's bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. And the prophecy is this. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That's enough, he said. All right, so what I don't want us to do, because um, this is, again, three verses, um, and, and me uh, previously reading through the Gospel of Luke, I just kind of blew past this. It's just, okay, tell somebody to go get some swords and pack a lunch, I guess, or whatever, uh, and just kept going. All right, but I don't want us to do that, because this is immediately after the Last Supper. Um, I don't want us to ignore this text because uh, think about this. Whenever people are on their deathbed, whenever they know death is approaching, they begin to say things um, that they, they really want to impart some knowledge generally to people, right? Like famous last words, things like that. So this is, um, if you'll let me get away with this, the deathbed of Jesus. He knows that he is going to die within the next 24 hours, um, less than that actually. So he is, he's not just reminiscing about a time that he sent them out and he's not just telling them, hey, you know, take some money in a traveler's or traveler's bag with you whenever you go. Um, he's not just reminiscing. He's teaching them something. Right? And it's incredibly important to him that they know this because this is one of the last discourses he's going to have with his disciples. So I don't want us to skim past this whenever we read. Um, but let's get some context. Right, in, in verse 35, Jesus says, When I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? And they said, No. Right? So what's he talking about? Right? Um, What's he talking about in verse 35? This is actually Jesus referencing something that he did earlier, um, obviously, when I sent you out, past tense. Uh, but this is something recorded in the, in the Gospel of Luke as well. It's in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to read that just so you guys get a little bit of context of what Jesus was referring to. Luke writes, One day, Jesus called together his twelve disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began to circuit, or their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. Right, so that's a little bit of background. That's what he's referring to is the time that he sent them out and said, take literally nothing, no food, no money, nothing, no extra clothes. Right, so what's going on there whenever Jesus did that in Luke 9? Um, I think we've got to understand that before we can understand what he's telling them now. Um, he, so he, he gave them authority to preach. He gave them authority to heal all in his name. And then he instructs them, take nothing with you. Um, what, he's, what he's saying there, as far as, I can, as far as I can understand, is what he's saying is, trust me. Right? I've got you. I'm going to provide for you everything that you're going to need. So you don't need to take anything extra. Just go. Right? Just go and trust me to provide. And that also tells me this as, as I read that. Why would Jesus tell his disciples that they don't have to take anything extra? 
Um, he is expecting them, Jesus is expecting his disciples to be welcomed by the masses. Right? He's expecting people to invite them into their homes, people who aren't followers of Christ yet, just to invite them in and be very hospitable. This is what Jesus is sovereignly expecting to happen. And they were. The disciples were very well received. Again, we saw in verse 35 of chapter 22, he said, did you need anything? And they said, no, we didn't need anything, right? Which implies they were very hospitable to us. They let us into their homes. We stayed there, and then we would move on to the next place, and someone else would let us in. Um, And that got me thinking, basically, everyone welcomed Jesus into their towns, right? No matter where Jesus went, I understand the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and teachers of the law and all that. I know that they... Um, opposed Jesus, and they opposed him really hard. Um, but pretty much the common man, like everyone else, the general populace, um, they welcomed him gladly, right? Think about it. Like, why wouldn't they? Jesus is teaching in a way they've never heard before. He's explaining scripture to them in a way that, that they can understand. He's talking on their level and not like some ivory tower scholar, right? He's meeting them on their level. He's teaching. Um, he's healing. He's among the common people that, like Pharisees and stuff, we wouldn't generally associate with. Um, he's healing their sick. And he's claiming to be the Messiah, right? He's claiming to be Messiah, um, this, this Holy One sent of God to redeem God's people and to bring peace. Um, now, that being said, the, the, the general population, they wanted a warrior Messiah, right? They wanted a warrior king. Um, they wanted the Roman Empire to get out of Israel and leave them alone. Um, and they didn't really understand that the Messiah, according to Isaiah, was going to have to suffer, which we're going to look at a little bit later. Um, They didn't understand that Jesus was going to have to suffer in order to bring them peace. That he wasn't there to be a political ruler or anything like that, but he was coming to be a spiritual ruler. But one day he would come to rule the earth um, as a true king. Um, But, notwithstanding all that, the people were really stoked to have a potential Messiah in their midst, right? Because other people had come saying that they were were, uh, the Messiah, I'm stammering. Other people had come and said that. Um, So they were pretty pretty excited to receive Jesus for that, so they welcomed him. Um, so by extension, right, the disciples coming in the name of this new Messiah, um, these disciples of Jesus were very well received. They, they were treated really well by people, and there was no real persecution, and that's what I really want us to take from this. They were well received by the population. There was no real persecution, maybe some mild disdain for them from like the Pharisees and stuff, but people weren't hating them or trying to kill them or anything like that. Again, they were generally well provided for. Um, And Jesus is calling this time to mind. In chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, he's recalling that whenever times were easier on the disciples, right? Like I read this in a commentary. I thought this was beautiful. It said, like a loving father, Jesus had shielded his 12 disciples from persecution while he was still among them. Right? He says, okay, they're not ready for this yet. Um, I'm here. I'm going to continue to protect them. And Jesus protected them because his time had not yet come to be delivered up to his enemies. His time had not come to suffer and be persecuted and die. And because his time hadn't come for that, then neither had his disciples' time come for that either. Um, right? So the big idea that I want us to take from that little passage so far is that Jesus had sovereignly kept them from persecution in the past. Right, completely in control of the whole thing. He had kept them from suffering, um, again, because they were well-received by unbelievers. Right, so whenever we keep that in our mind, right, that that's what had been going on, um, these, we're calling a, a beautiful, peaceful time, and then we get to verse 36, and he says, but now. Right, like whenever I discovered that, all of a sudden, but now becomes incredibly ominous. 
Right? Something is about to change, and it's not going to be for the better of the disciples. Right? At least in a temporal sense. At least in their relationships with other people. He says, but now. Right? Jesus tells them, basically, pack a lunch. Right? It was easy for you then, but now be prepared. He says, take money, take clothes, take a traveler's bag, right? take food with you, be ready. And he says, buy a sword. Right? And, and, he, and he puts a lot of emphasis on this sword. Right? He says, if you, it's so important that you need to sell your cloak, right? your outer garment, um, which was a pretty important piece of clothing to have, especially if you're traveling, right? Because it gets cold at night. Um, so he says, if you don't have a sword, it is so important that you have one. Sell something and buy it. Sell this outer garment of yours and buy one. So that's really what he's stressing here is you need a sword if you're going to be going out. Um, so Jesus is telling the disciples, don't expect the same kind of sovereign provision that you had from me in the past. Right? Jesus is still going to be in control of the situation. Jesus is still going to be the sovereign king. But those easy days are over. Right? Something is going to happen soon to end those easy days. So Jesus says, take food, take clothes, take money for a place to stay or for materials or whatever you need. But above everything else, take a sword. Now why a sword? Right? Why a sword? This is where the, the passage gets a little bit controversial. Um, some scholars debate on what it means. There's three general interpretations of it. Um, you can feel free to talk to me about what those other ones are later or study it out for yourself. Um, but uh, I believe consistent with Jesus' teaching about violence and praying for your enemies and blessing those who hate you, that he's saying this whenever he says, go get a sword. Be prepared for hostility. Get a sword. What do you need a sword for? Well, people are generally going to attack you, Right? Get a sword. He's saying, be prepared for incoming hostility. Again, we have, to, we have to look at all of Jesus' teachings and not just isolated things. So we know he can't be inciting them to violence against their enemies because Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. And we're going to see Jesus do that as, he, as he's nailed to a cross here in, in a chapter or two. Right? So we know Jesus isn't telling them to go out and kill those who oppress them, but he's saying, be prepared for people to be hostile towards you. Right? And, and keep in mind, he puts this huge emphasis on the sword. So that means this. Above everything else, Jesus wants his people to be prepared to be hated. Now, that's heavy, right? Like, no one likes that. I don't, I don't like to hear that. He says, be prepared for hostility from the world. Be prepared to be hated because you identify with me. Be prepared to be hated and to suffer because you are going to proclaim my good news. Right? And, and what's really funny is after he says that, right? Because Jesus tends to speak in, in metaphor. Actually, Thomas kind of calls him out on that one time. He's like, yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, which is really like, hopeful for me whenever I see like, the disciples who live with Jesus say, like, uh, got no clue what you meant, Lord. Um, that like, they miss stuff kind of makes me uh, feel good whenever I don't fully understand things. But the disciples completely miss what Jesus is getting at. They completely miss the metaphor that, he, that he's talking. Um, because in verse 38, they're like, he's like, hey, Pack, pack a sword with you. Get a sword. Be prepared for hostility. We have two swords. <laughs> right? I guess what they do, they produce literal swords, and then Jesus says, that's enough. Right? Which makes sense with the rest of the teaching that Jesus is saying, drop it. Right? Like, that's enough. Like, I can just see him just, like, face-palming. <laughs> right? Like, just, you'll understand later, after I suffer and after I go to the cross, you'll understand what I mean whenever you really think about what I'm saying and you're not so set on me being this 
kick out the Romans, warrior king, Messiah. Whenever you really understand what kind of Messiah I am, you'll understand that I'm not talking about literal swords, so that's enough, right? But as I started to think on Friday when I was, I was putting this sermon together, that's us, right? We're a lot like the disciples in that, right? We hear about suffering, right? Especially suffering for identifying ourselves with Jesus, and we start looking for swords, Right, whether they be like like metaphorically, we start looking for swords, or literally, because I know how some Christians around here are. Um, you know, we need to protect ourselves against the government in case they start oppressing us. So instead of you know taking persecution on the back, buy an AK. <laughs> right? I've actually no joke, no joke. I've actually recently seen. I'm not naming names. I want to, but I'm not gonna. I've seen uh, Christians post on Facebook a picture of a dude holding two guns with that passage that we just read: "Sell your cloak and buy a sword." And I was like. Come on, man. Like, that is like exactly what the disciples did, right? But we are a lot like that. Um, we start thinking about ways uh, of how we're going to defend ourselves or protect ourselves. Or, or there's this too, this bomb shelter kind of theology whenever we hear about suffering that we're going to hide away, right? Uh, it's just now thought of Brendan Fraser, Blast from the Past. Anyone? Yeah, a few people. Am I, dare I say it? Are some of you too young for that reference? Because I'm not that much older than you. You know, whatever. Um, right? But we think, like, we're going to do this bomb shelter theology and hide away, or we're going to fight back and return evil, return suffering and hostility, return evil with more evil. Right? Um, oppression, we're going to meet it with a physical defense. Um, but then this hit me. Most of us, not necessarily saying all, be convicted if this is you. I hope the Holy Spirit does. Um, and... and And let yourself be convicted by this. Be honest with yourself for what I'm getting ready to say. Most of us aren't or haven't been willing to suffer for the gospel. Either we are not or we haven't been recently willing to suffer for the gospel. I want you to think about this. We won't have a conversation about Jesus We won't have a conversation about salvation from the wrath of God to come against unbelievers who have not repented and put their faith in Christ. We won't have that conversation with someone that we have known for years. We won't have have a 15-minute conversation about the good news that you can be saved from hell because Jesus has shown you such mercy and grace that you don't deserve. We won't have that conversation with somebody because it might make our relationship get a little bit rocky with them because we we have to present a really hard truth that God's wrath is coming against unbelievers. That hell awaits those who don't put their faith in Christ. We're afraid to have that conversation. We aren't willing to have that conversation because we don't want to suffer the loss of a friendship. We don't want to cause any kind of strife within our families. We're not willing Right? Or, or we won't talk to someone that we just met. Right? This is maybe someone you haven't known very long. You just met them because you, know, you feel like you've got to get a, a little bit tighter with them before you can talk to them about this stuff. Because if they don't know you that well, they might think that you're crazy. Right? Because you believe that a very, very old book is the inspired word of God and is completely right. And whenever you disagree with it, you're wrong. That is crazy in a relativistic society, I might add, that you would call yourself wrong. <laughs> That is wild in America uh, that we would have that kind of a mentality. Uh, that's, that's, but, but we won't have these conversations with someone that we just befriended or just met because we're afraid that they're going to think that we're crazy or that we're going to have a conversation about something biblical with them and then they're going to call you a bigot right? because you're going to stand for some biblical truth that is incredibly unpopular in our time. Um, you know, or, or we won't. Um, this is a little bit different. This isn't so much conversation. But we won't help somebody. 
um, because we're afraid that they're going to take advantage of us um, or that, you know, they're not really worthy of our help. You know, these are all things that we won't do, that we're not willing to do to suffer for the gospel uh, in, in any way, shape, or form. And I'm convinced of this. this. This hit me like a ton of bricks when I was preparing for this. I'm convinced that we are not ready to suffer because we are not willing to suffer. Right now, to put that another way, we are not prepared to suffer because we are not willing to do anything that might cost us or bring suffering to us. That's why we're not ready for it. It's because we're not willing to do anything. We're not willing to put ourselves out there. We're not willing to make things awkward. And I think that's because we have not accepted suffering for Jesus' message as part of the Christian life. We're not, we're not willing to have an awkward conversation. We're not willing to jeopardize a friendship. We're not willing to even be used whenever we help somebody. We're not willing to do that because we have not accepted the fact that suffering is part of what being a Christian is. We haven't. We, we've lived in a, in a very prosperous time the last few hundred years in America as Christians. We don't know what that feels like. Um, and I think that we're not willing to suffer because we've not been consumed with the love of God. All right, First John tells us uh, perfect love casts out fear. Right, that means whenever we become consumed with love for God, that we're not going to be afraid to suffer anymore. Whenever we become consumed with this message that Jesus would suffer God's wrath on our behalf, the wrath that we deserve, the just penalty for our sin and our unrighteousness, and that He would, on the other hand, live a perfect life in order to give us His righteousness and make us righteous, that He would give us perfection and take away our sin and give us grace that we don't deserve, all because He loved us, right? Like if we have really been consumed with that message, we're not going to be afraid to suffer. Like that message that God has loved you so much that if you suffer anything here, He's still going to take care of you in the long run or even temporarily sometimes. You know, to be consumed by that love for us and to really trust in that kind of sovereign grace of God given to us, to be consumed by that kind of love for us makes us willing to do anything, come whatever may, because we're no longer afraid. Because we've entrusted our lives to a sovereign God who's proven his love for us and that he sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. We won't be afraid because we've committed our lives to him and we trust him. Right? Like, kind of like a father who loves his family and is willing to give up everything for his family because he loves them so. If we love Christ because he has first loved us, then we are willing to give everything for his cause. Just like the father is willing to give everything for the cause of his family. So Jesus has kept the disciples, back to the passage, Jesus has kept the disciples from hostility and suffering, but he says hostility is going to start coming. All right, so that made me ask this question, why? What is going to happen to bring this change about that people are going to become hostile towards Christians? Why is it going to change? In verse 37, Jesus gives us his reasoning. He gives us his prophecy. It says, he was counted among the rebels. He says, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He actually phrases it two different ways, but he says it twice. That prophecy that he was counted among the rebels must be fulfilled in me. 
Now, that doesn't seem to make too much sense. Okay, so are they going to hate you because, like, your people are going to be, like, super rebellious and, like, bring swords against the Romans? Is that why the persecution is going to come? That's what some scholars think. Um, But really, if you take this prophecy that Jesus is actually referring to, he was counted among the rebels um, and that that has to be fulfilled in him. He is actually, this is super cool, he is referencing the entire passage in Isaiah about the suffering servant. He was counted among the rebels. He is, he is referencing Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 50 through 12, 53, 12. And I'm actually going to read this entire passage. Right, the Bible tells us to devote ourselves to the public reading of the word. So we're going to do that. We're going to look at a pretty lengthy passage. But I want you guys to think about the suffering that this Messiah is going to have to go through. And know that this is Jesus. And I, and I want you to, to draw, that, draw those things out that Jesus is going to have to suffer. And then we're going to see how this all makes sense. This is what God says. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was, like a le- he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. All right, so let's, let's think about that. I know that was lengthy. But what I want us to draw out of this, Jesus is telling his disciples, be prepared for persecution. Be prepared for hostility from the world because you identify with me and you proclaim the same message as me. And then he refers to this prophecy. And what does this prophecy say? This prophecy says Jesus is going to be despised and rejected and acquainted with grief and crushed and beaten, and whipped, and treated as a criminal, and oppressed, and killed. 
but he had done no wrong. Jesus is saying, prepare for hostility. This is going to happen to me. Right? That's why he refers to this, right? I, I ask the question, why, what does Jesus' suffering have to do with our own suffering for the gospel? Right? Two things. One, it is by Jesus' suffering, our punishment for our sin, that we have peace with God, that we're counted as righteous by God, because Jesus has, according to the Bible, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in being perfect and also perfectly suffering the penalty that we deserve for us. So that's what Jesus' suffering has to do with us primarily. But in the immediate context, it reminds me of John 15, 18 through 21, where Jesus says this, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Why does he refer to Isaiah? Why does he talk about he has to suffer and this must be fulfilled in him and that we likewise should prepare for hostility from the world? Why? Because we're not greater than Jesus. He is our master and we are slaves to him. No slave is greater than our master, than its master. So the world hated Jesus, even though he was innocent and had done no wrong ever. Not to another person, not towards God at all. And they hated him, so the world will hate us too. Because we claim Jesus. Because we pledge allegiance to Christ. And if we aren't prepared for people to hate us, we're going to get angry when they do. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus is preparing us for this. If we're not prepared for it, we're going to get angry when they hate us. You know, unbelievers may be intolerant of us even as we are being tolerant. Right? I know I've experienced that. Someone's completely intolerant of a Christian worldview, even though we are being completely tolerant of their worldview, and respectfully having a dialogue with them, and they just get incredibly nasty with us, and they don't see the contradiction. Right, we live in a culture that screams tolerance and is tolerant towards everything but the gospel of Jesus. This, this is spiritual blindness, right? This is spiritual blindness. It's, it's hostility is what it is. Um, but the thing is, that hostility that seems like it's coming off towards us, that's truly hostility towards God and not us, right? Romans 8, 6, and 7 says the, the mindset on the flesh is at enmity with God. It will not please Him. Indeed, it cannot please Him. Right? So the, the, the mind of an unbeliever is actually hostile towards God. So naturally, whenever they hear this good news, or have, we try to have these kind of conversations with people who are unbelievers, if, if an unbeliever gets hostile with us, that, that's natural. We should expect those kinds of things. But here's the thing, that should break our hearts. Whenever we suffer hostility for the gospel, if we actually have the guts and love for Christ to go proclaim the gospel to people, it should break our hearts that people become hostile. It should break our hearts because that was us at one time. Maybe you weren't verbally hostile. Maybe you never hit anyone or did anything crazy like that. Maybe it seemed like apathy, but it was really hostility towards the gospel. You didn't want to talk about these things. You got irritated with people as they spoke to you about Christ. 
And we know that that was once us. And we know that that kind of a life, that kind of a mentality leads to death and hell. We should be broken whenever people are hostile against the gospel. But instead of weeping, and instead of praying, and instead of suffering like Jesus, we prepare for battle. That's what we tend to want to do like the disciples. We want to begin to fight like ungodly men. We want to scream. We want to be snarky and rude. Right? Even if it's just in our own private circles. I know I'm guilty of that, and I know I'm not the only one in here. Want to be rude about those unbelievers? We're like the disciples who hear about coming hostility and then produce literal swords and says, yeah, how are we going to defend ourselves? How are we going to defend this gospel? And that's because we aren't willing or prepared to suffer like Jesus did. And when I say like Jesus did, I mean in love for these people who hate the message and by extension may hate us. We don't suffer in love for them. We don't suffer praying for them, as Jesus did on the cross. We don't suffer doing good for them in spite of how much they don't like us. And I think that whenever we get that mentality of of becoming snarky or rude or arrogant or defensive towards these people, I'm convinced that it's because we have not armed ourselves with the mind of Christ. 1 Peter 4.1, the first bit says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. But what's the attitude of Christ? Some of you guys know I go here, I harp on this. The attitude of Christ is in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges or rights. And he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. What is the attitude of Christ? He gave up his rights. That's the attitude of Jesus. That's the attitude of Jesus towards people as he gave up his rights. Right? Whenever we want to retaliate with hostility against hostility, we are trying to keep our rights to be angry, our right to be hurt, our right to hate somebody, our right to be disgusted with someone's response to us. But in doing that, we really miss this huge fact that Jesus had every single right to damn us to hell. Did he not? Would any believer in here argue that you did not deserve hell? That you do not deserve hell? I doubt it. I've never met a believer that would do that. But instead, he gave up that right and loved us. We have to be armed with that mentality because that is Christianity. That is how the Christ met persecution. So we are going into a hostile world. If you're an unbeliever and you're here, you are hostile to God. You might think it's apathy. You might think it's just a shoulder shrugging. Uh, You know, I don't hate God. I just, you know, whatever. God himself says that you are an enemy of his if you do not obey the gospel. That you are at enmity with him. But we are going into a hostile world. If you're a believer, as you leave here, you're going. But in the face of the world's hostility to Christ and his gospel and his people, we must respond as Jesus did. And that is with love for his enemies. He says he would be numbered among rebels. And we were those rebels. 
Right? This isn't just some other people, those rebels. No, the Bible actually says he was numbered amongst the transgressors in other uh, translations. And we were those transgressors. We break God's law. We transgress his law. We were the ones who were in rebellion against God. And in spite of that, Jesus lived and died to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law for us. That is how we are to meet hostility. And there is a beautiful reason to meet hatred like Jesus did. That reason is this. The saving of sinners to the glory of God. Jesus suffered this kind of persecution and hostility against the gospel in order to save us. And we do it to tell others about Jesus. I heard an awesome quote from a preacher named David Platt. He says, Jesus suffered to provide the gospel, and we suffer to propagate the gospel. Suffering is part of life. Suffering is part of a Christian life. And we do it to share the gospel. But I'm going to leave you guys with this. You're going out here, Jesus says, as sheep among wolves. But through our diligent proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, And our love for people through the suffering in spite of hostility, some wolves might become sheep. That is our hope in suffering. That is why we push on like Christ. That is why we do not become rude. That is why we have broken hearts and we weep and we pray for these people and continue these conversations. That's why we push on like Jesus. To see the enemies of God turn into children of God no matter what that might cost us. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. We were rebels against you. We were transgressors, and we still are transgressors. We still sin, and yet you give us mercy every single day. You give us the grace and hope of the gospel. Father, help us to be just caught up in your love for us, that you loved us first, so that we would reciprocate that love towards you and be bold for the same message that your son proclaimed. Holy Spirit, help us to fall in love with the gospel again. Break our hearts for the people around us who don't know Jesus, who are enemies of God, because we know what that ends in. And give us a bold desire to go see wolves become sheep. Help us to be diligent in our proclamation of the gospel. And be diligent in our love for even our enemies. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.